When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Wednesday Wonders, science fiction and fantasy on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Hello, and welcome to Reimagined Radio, a program about sound-based storytelling. I'm John Barber. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Reimagined Radio celebrates X-1, the anthology program which, from 1955 to 1958, was known for its high-quality radio adaptations of original science fiction stories by authors who were the rising stars of the genre. Regardless of author and story subject, each episode of X-1 began with an introduction by announcer Fred Collins. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. Today, more than half a century later, X-1 is legendary and iconic with its broad appeal for listeners. On any list of the best radio programs ever, you will find X-1. We'll listen to two stories for this celebration of X-1. The first is The Velt by Ray Bradbury, first published in the Saturday Evening Post, September 1950, with the title The World the Children Made. The story's title was changed to The Velt in 1951, when it was collected in Bradbury's anthology, The Illustrated Man. Ernest Canoy adapted The Velt as an episode of the radio program Dimension X in 1951. Canoy's script was also used for this 1955 episode of X-1. Bradbury's story is set in a future home, where the children program their playroom to provide a virtual reality of the African veldt complete with lions. As the children spend more and more time in the playroom, the parents become distressed, thinking the room is taking over their roles as parents. When they try to limit the children's access to the playroom, trouble begins. Let's listen now to the veldt. This is the office of Dr. David McLean, resident psychiatrist of the new Chicago Institute of Human Engineering. All right, Miss Carver, will you take this, please? To Charles S. Haworth, senior psychiatrist, new Chicago Institute of Human Engineering. The following constitutes my report on the case of George and Lydia Abbott, which we discussed by telephone. 
Subject George relates onset of symptoms to the purchase of a $60,000 soundproofed happy life home. Under narcosynthesis during initial interviews, subject described the experience in the following manner. Miss Carver, would you play back the sonic record of the initial interview? We'd always wanted one, and then we could afford it, so... Go on, Mr. Abbott. Tell me about the home. The home? Well, it was supposed to do everything, the agent told us. And it did, I guess. It clothed us, fed us, and rocked us to sleep, played and sang, and it was good to us. Very good, sure. Tell me about the nursery. The nursery? The nursery? Ah. It was completely automatic? Completely automatic. There were crystalline walls that wavered from two to three dimensions. There were pseudo-textured floors that shifted from brick to dirt to waving grass. The nursery was the best, but then we wanted the best for the children. Doctor, I must be crazy. We have no children. What about Peter and Wendy? They're your children. Oh, no, no. We have no children, Doctor. We have no children. All right, Miss Carver. To continue. After three sessions, the subject was able to recall and accept the idea that he had two children. He described the first day. All right, Peter and Wendy. This is your nursery. What's so special about a nursery, Dad? Plenty. Just go in and see. Do we have to? You'll be surprised. Gee. Go ahead. I'm scared. I'm not. Hey, it's nice in here. It is? Come on in, Wendy. Boy, look at the pictures on the walls. They're real. <laughs> They're almost real. You can change them any way you like just by thinking of them. Go on in, dear. Well, all right, Mommy. Hey, Wendy, look what I can do with the pictures. That's the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. Sure. I just thought about it, and there it was. Let me try. Peter, let me try. Well, go ahead. Just think. How about Wizard and Oz? I want to see Wizard and Oz. <laughs> well, dear... There we are. Oh, they like it, don't why, they? Why shouldn't they? All I have to do is think, and they've got whatever they want in three dimensions. Color, sound, and smell. <laughs> oh, it's nice that we can give them all the advantages. Sure. What else are we working for, huh? Mm. Well, what do you want to do this evening? Well, the Petersons asked us over for bridge, but well, if you... Well, we don't have to worry about the kids. They'll be all right in the nursery. Come on, Lydia. We deserve a night out. And in the nursery, the walls were a kaleidoscope of time and space and imagination. The green forest of Sherwood and the quiet forms of Robin and his merry men gave way to the roll of the high seas and the smell of salt in the air as Sir Henry Morgan sailed into the harbor at Jamaica. And behind the crystalline quartz walls, the vacuum tubes and grids and banks of metal image tape spun quietly and efficiently, erasing the line between illusion and reality. Of course, the electric bill from Consolidated Utilities was tremendous, but 
it was worth it. The happy life home breathed contentedly as life proceeded with soft automaticity as guaranteed in the brochure and bill of sale. George. Hmm? George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. What's, uh, what's wrong with it? I don't know. I was in the nursery last week. It's perfectly all right. It's different now. What do you mean, different? I want you to come and see. Are the kids there? No. Madge Allen took them to a show along with her kids. That's why I want you to look at it now before they get back. Oh, all right. What you expect me to do, I don't know. I'm no mechanic. This isn't a question of a leaky faucet, George. All right, dear. I'm coming. The nursery light flicked on as they came down the hall. The relays clicked and the tubes warmed and chemical odor banks and pipes bubbled into life as they paused before the closed door. Go ahead, George. Open it. On all sides, in three dimensions, stretched the hot, tired landscapes of an African veldt reproduced to the last stick and pebble and bit of straw. The ceiling above them became a sky with a hot yellow sun. A wind blew in from the baked veldtland. The hot straw smell of lion grass. The cool green smell of the hidden waterhole. The great rusty smell of animals. The howl of the jackal in the distance. And the papery rustling of the great vultures that wheeled and circled under the yellow burning sun. Let's get out of this, son. It's a little too real. Oh, George, you promised you'd look around. Well, I don't see anything. Wait a minute. There are the vultures. Filthy creatures. There. There are the lions. Far over that way. Yes, I see them. Well, they're on their way to the water hole. They've just eaten. Some animal... A zebra or a baby giraffe, maybe. Can you see it? Are you sure? It's a little late to be sure. Nothing over there but clean bone and the vultures swooping down for what's left. Did you hear that scream? What scream? About a moment ago. Sorry, no. Oh, here come the lions. George, they're frightening. Take it easy, Lydia. They're just illusion. The lions were 15 feet away. So real, so startlingly real, you could feel the prickling fur on your hand, and your mouth was stuffed with the dusty upholstery smell of their heated pelts. And the yellow of them was in your eyes like the yellow of an exquisite tapestry. The yellows of lions and summer grass, and the sound of the matted lion lungs exhaling on the silent noontide, and the smell of meat from the panting, dripping mouth. George... I'm afraid they're so real. They're only an illusion, Lydia, that's all. Watch out! Ah! Out, quick, outside! They almost got us. Now take it easy, calm down. I could feel their breath. Get a hold of yourself, Lydia. They aren't real. Walls, that's all it is, crystalloid walls. They look so real. Of course they do. But it's all dimensional color reactionary process and metal tape film behind glass screens. It's all odorophonics and sonics. Now, here, take my handkerchief. I'm afraid. Did you see? Did you feel it? It's 
too real. Now, now, Lydia. And we've got to tell Wendy and Peter not to read any more on Africa. Of course, of course, dear. I want you to lock that place up. But you know how difficult Peter is about that. I punished him last week by locking the nursery for an afternoon, and he threw a tantrum. And Wendy, too. Well, they live for the nursery. It's got to be locked. That's all there is to it. You've been working too hard, Lydia. You need a rest. I don't know. Maybe I don't have enough to do. I have too much time to think. All I do is set the menu selector dials at the beginning of the week. But that's the whole idea. The house is automatic. I know, but couldn't we turn it off for about a week and take a vacation? You mean you want to fry eggs for me? And darn socks. I feel like I don't belong here. The house is wife and mother and maid. How can I compete with the African belts? George, Hmm? those lions can't get out of there, can they? Of course not, dear. Now don't think about it anymore. This is Reimagined Radio, and we are celebrating the science fiction program X-1, Listening to the Velt by Ray Bradbury. I'm John Barber. We'll continue in just a moment. Programming like this is brought to you through the generous support of our founding sponsors at ADCO, Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's adco1.com. Big thank you to Craft Cannabis, formerly known as New Vansterdam, for their ongoing support of KXRW Vancouver Radio. Craft Cannabis is Vancouver's premier cannabis market for those 21 years of age and over. Visit craftcannabis.com to view an order from their full online menu, and they offer in-store, curbside, and touchless pickup to better serve you. Craft Cannabis is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at craftcannabis.com. Court-appointed special advocates for children known as CASA, are volunteers who advocate for the best interest of children who have come into the care of the state as a result of abuse, neglect, or abandonment. You can lend your voice and volunteer with CASA to change a child's story. CASA offers virtual info sessions and training. If interested, now is the time to get involved with CASA and make a lasting difference in the lives of children and families in the foster care system. Clark County CASA is a program of the YWCA of Clark County. More information available at casaclarkcounty.org. This is Reimagined Radio, and we are listening to The Velt by Ray Bradbury. Family tensions are coming to a head between parents and children over the use of a virtual reality playroom. Let's continue the story. They ate alone. He sat idly watching the dining room table produce warm dishes of food from its mechanical interior. You forgot the ketchup. That's better. It wouldn't hurt to lock the children out of the nursery for a while. It was clear that they had been spending too much time in Africa. That sun, he could feel it on his neck still like a hot paw. And the lions and the smell of blood. Remarkable how the nursery caught the telepathic emanations of the children's minds and created a life to fulfill their desires. The children thought zebras, and there were zebras. Sun, sun, 
Giraffes? Giraffes. Death and death. They were so young. But long before you knew what death was, you were wishing it on someone else. But this, the long, hot African veldt, the awful death in the jaws of a lion, and repeated again and again and again. The children came home dutifully at 8.30. Hi, Mom. Hi, Pop. Hello, Hi. Darlings. Do you want something to eat, dear? We're just having dessert. We're full of strawberry ice cream. And hot dogs. We'll just sit and watch. Sure. Uh, Peter, uh, tell us about the nursery. The nursery? All about Africa and everything. I don't understand. Well, your mother and I were just traveling through Africa with rod and reel. There's no Africa in the nursery. Oh, come now, Peter. We know better. I don't remember any Africa. Do you win? Uh-uh. Go run and see, huh? Sure. Uh, I'll be right back. Wendy, come back here. Wendy! Oh, she'll be right back, Pop. She doesn't have to. I've seen it. Come on. Sure, Pop. But Wendy will tell us. Open the door. See, Daddy? It's not Africa. It's Florida, like in Bambi. There go the deer. See? It isn't Africa. I see it isn't. Go to bed. But it isn't nine o'clock. You heard me. Go to bed. Okay. Good night, Mom. Good night, Pop. Good night. Good night, dear. I'll be right in. Wait a minute, Lydia. Look at this. What is it? This is the corner where the lions were, isn't it? What is that you picked up? An old wallet of mine. There's a smell of hot grass on it. The smell of a lion. It's wet with saliva. And it's been chewed. George. Those smears of blood. Come on out. Now let's go to bed. But in the middle of the night, he was still awake. And he knew his wife was awake. George, how did your wallet get in the nursery? I don't know. Wendy must have changed the walls from the African veldt. I'm going to keep it locked. Maybe it isn't good for the children. My father used to say children are like carpets. They should be stepped on occasionally. We've never lifted a hand. They're spoiled and we're spoiled. I think I'll have Dr. McLean come tomorrow morning and have a look at Africa. But it isn't Africa now. It's Florida and Bambi. I have a feeling it'll be Africa again before then. Although their automatic somno beds tried very hard, the two adults could not be rocked to sleep for another hour. A smell of cats was in the night air. And in the morning, the stove cooked French toast and the dining room table poured the syrup and melted butter. Pop? Yes? You aren't going to lock up the nursery for good, are you? That all depends. On what? On you and your sister. We feel you should have some variety, dear. I wouldn't want the nursery locked up ever. Well, as a matter of fact, we're thinking of turning the whole house off for about a month. Sort of camping out. Be fun for a change. Now, don't you think so, Wendy? 
No, it'd be awful. I don't want to do anything but look and listen and smell. What else is there to do? Oh, all right, all right. Go play in Africa. Are you going to shut off the house soon? We're considering it. I don't think you better consider it anymore, Pop. I won't have any threats from you, son. Okay, Pop. Come on, Wendy. Let's get back. After breakfast, Dr. David McLean arrived. I saw the nursery last year, George. It looked all right to me. You didn't notice anything unusual? No. The pattern showed the usual violence, a tendency towards slight paranoia. All children feel persecuted by their parents. It's perfectly normal. There. There it is. Suppose we take a look at it now. They entered without knocking and sent the children out. The screams had faded and the lions were feeding quietly under the trees. I wish I could see what they're eating. How long has this been going on? A little over a month. Certainly doesn't feel good. I don't want feelings. I want facts. George, George, a psychologist never saw a fact in his life. He knows about feelings. And this doesn't feel good. Now, my advice to you is to have the whole room torn down and your children brought to me every day for the next year for treatment. Is it that bad? I'm afraid so. You know, that's why the nursery was developed originally, to let us examine the patterns left on the wall by a child's mind. But what is it? What's wrong with Peter and Wendy? It's hard to say. I haven't punished them more than average. Oh, I took away a few gadgets. Last week, I locked the nursery to show I meant business. You've let this room replace you and your wife in your children's affections. This room is their real father and mother. And now you come along and want to shut it. You can feel the hatred coming out of that sky. George, turn everything off. The nursery, the automatic kitchen, the whole automatic house. And start now. But won't the shock be too much for the children? I don't want them going any deeper. Let's get out of here. I never like these rooms. They get me nervous. Those lions look real, don't they? I don't suppose there's any way... What? That they could become real. Not that I know. Some flaw in the machinery, tampering? No. I don't imagine the room will like being turned off. Nothing ever likes to die, even a room. I wonder if it hates me for turning it off. Paranoia is thick today. Well, hello. Is this your scarf? It's stained. Brown. Blood. That's Lydia's. Come on, the main fuse box is out here. Right, go ahead. Pull the switch. off. The two children were in hysterics. They screamed and kicked and threw things. They yelled and sobbed and swore and jumped on the furniture, weeping. It's off and it stays off. The whole house dies as of now. He marched around the house, cutting switches and pulling fuses. Insults won't get you anywhere. I wish you were dead. We were for a long while. Now we're going to start really living. Instead of being handled and massaged, we're going to live. Once more, Daddy. 
Just once more. One more minute of the nursery, that's all. Just one more minute. Oh, George, it can't hurt, really. Uh... Oh, all right, all right, only shut up. One minute, and that's the end. Forever. Gee, thanks, Pop. Thanks. And then we're going on a vacation. Dr. McLean is coming in half an hour to help us out. Lydia, turn on the nursery for just a minute. Oh, boy. Come on, Wendy. Come on. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks a lot. Just one minute, remember? Now, where'd I put those suitcases? Lydia! Don't shout, George. I'm right here. Did you leave them alone in the nursery? Well, I've got to get ready, George. Well, I guess we'd better get them out of there before they get involved with those beasts again. Pop! Pop! Come here! Daddy! Mommy! Come on, quick! Wendy! Peter! What's the matter? Hurry up! Open the nursery! Wendy! Peter! Why, they aren't anywhere. Wendy! Peter! Peter! The door! Open the door! Oh. They've locked up from the outside. Peter! Peter! Wendy! Peter! out, Peter. Open the door. It's time to go. Open the door. George, the lions. Peter, do you hear me? Open this door. They're all around us, George. Son, son, do you hear me? Let us out. Son. George, look out. The lions, they're coming. When Dr. David McLean came half hour later, he found the two children in the nursery sitting in the center of the open glade eating a picnic lunch. Beyond them was the water hole and the yellow veldt land. Above was the hot sun. At a distance, Dr. McLean saw the lions fighting and clawing and then settling down to feed in silence under the shady trees. Hi, kids. Where are your mom and dad? Oh, they'll be here directly. Good, good. We've got to get along. He squinted at the lions with his hands up to his eyes. Now they were done feeding and they moved to the waterhole to drink. A shadow flickered as the vultures dropped down from the blazing sky to finish what the lions left. Dr. McLean? Dr. McLean? Huh? What? Have a cup of tea? Which concludes my report to date. There were no lions, of course. Not in a physical sense. Lydia and George were devoured, however, almost as surely as if there had been lions. Their personalities were devoured by the mechanistic marvels which had usurped their role as parents. All four members of the family are under intensive therapy now and are doing as well as can be expected. Send that by telerope, Miss Carver. Oh, and uh, would you ask George Abbott to step inside? I'm ready for him now. You have just listened to The Velt, written by Ray Bradbury and broadcast as an episode of X-1, August 4, 1955. Our next story is The Cave of Night by James E. Gunn. First published in Galaxy Science Fiction, February 1955, Gunn's story was adapted by Ernest Canoy as a radio drama for X-1 in 1956. 
The story concerns the pilot of a U.S. experimental rocket ship stranded in space, unable to return to Earth, traveling through the cave of night, waiting to be rescued. Written in a time before human space travel, The Cave of Night anticipates the drama of Apollo 13, the tragedy of the Challenger and Columbia shuttle disasters, and even the fake moon landing conspiracy theories, all while stressing the importance of commitment and resources as we seek to slip the bonds of gravity and venture into space. Let's listen now to The Cave of Night. Oh, you want a little, Charlie? Okay. Though yet of Hamlet our dear brothers, death the memory be... Anyway, how's it, okay? Okay. Uh, check recording, will you? I may go over a half hour. Make sure they've got another reel of tape ready, okay? All right. Uh, look, Bill, I've just put the segments of tape together for the next week's show. I'm going to record my narrations, and we'll listen to it together tomorrow. I know this is unusual, but you're the producer, and I don't want you out on a limb that may be sawed off behind us. This week's show is uh, liable to either win us every award from the Peabody to the Pulitzer Prize, or maybe put the network out of business. Okay, we, uh, we start with a standard opening. Behind the world, etc., you know, 40 seconds. This is Harry Anders, your editor. At 8 o'clock, after the sun has set and the sky is darkening, look up. There's a man up there where no man has ever been. He is lost in the cave of night. And the fuel tank's empty. Receiver broken. Transmitting and clear. Anyone picking this up, anyone... This is Rev. McMillan calling. Notify Goddard Rock, New Mexico. There's no way to get back. There's a man up there where no man has ever been. He is lost in the cave of night. We all know that phrase now, the cave of night. It was written by a poet disguised in the cynical hide of a newspaper rewrite man. But it stuck. It caught the world and held it like a butterfly pinned to a board. It started with a ham, an amateur radio operator, in Davenport, Iowa... Uh, all right, Eddie. Roll the first tape in here. Uh, it's marked. Am I too close? <clears throat> I-, I was up in the attic. I usually have a talk with WG73. He's in Buenos Aires. We play chess. Well, uh, there was some kind of interference. And then all of a sudden, I heard this voice. Uh, I record most of my listening anyway, so I had the tape machine running. After I heard it, I call civil defense. Uh, that's what we're supposed to. If... Uh, look, Bill, I haven't done the final editing on these tapes, so don't worry if they're a little rough. Down out of the night, flung from the darkness, came these words, the first of so many that electrified the world. Notify Goddard Rock, New Mexico. There's no way to get back. No way to get back. I'm stuck up here. No way to get down. What does it take to catch the pity of the world? A man wedged underground in Kentucky. A little girl in the bottom of a well. Somebody alive, waiting for rescue, with the days of his life numbered. Somebody somewhere waiting for us to get him out. The story broke in this morning's papers. Orbiting 1,000 miles above our heads was a man, an officer of the United States Air Force in a fuelless spaceship, This is Reimagined Radio, and we are celebrating the science fiction program X-1, listening to The Cave of Night by James E. Gunn. 
I'm John Barber. We will continue in just a moment. Court-appointed special advocates for children, known as CASA, are volunteers who advocate for the best interest of children who have come into the care of the state as a result of abuse, neglect, or abandonment. You can lend your voice and volunteer with CASA to change a child's story. CASA offers virtual info sessions and training. If interested, now is the time to get involved with CASA and make a lasting difference in the lives of children and families in the foster care system. Clark County CASA is a program of the YWCA of Clark County. More information available at casaclarkcounty.org. Big thank you to Craft Cannabis, formerly known as New Vansterdam, for their ongoing support of KXRW Vancouver Radio. Craft Cannabis is Vancouver's premier cannabis market for those 21 years of age and over. Visit craftcannabis.com to view an order from their full online menu, and they offer in-store, curbside, and touchless pickup to better serve you. Craft Cannabis is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at craftcannabis.com. Programming like this is brought to you through the generous support of our founding sponsors at ADCO, Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's adco1.com. This is Reimagined Radio, and we are celebrating X-1, listening to The Cave of Night by James E. Gunn. A rescue mission is underway. Let's continue the story. We're recording at the desk of Mike Bayless, senior night editor of the Continental Press National Wire. They always get a reaction like this. I remember the Floyd Collins story in the 20s. Fellow trapped in that cave in Kentucky, remember? Oh, sure. And the whole country hanging on to see if we could get out. Then there was that uh, little girl stuck in the well. Kathy Fiskus? Yeah. Yeah. We pulled all those stories out and put them on the wire for background. But this hit bigger. We got the first lead from an Air Force handout in New Mexico. They just said an experimental rocket failed to return to base. But by that time, the cat was out of the bag. Ham operators picked up those messages from Boston to Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, Mr. Bayless, you first used the phrase, the cave of night, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, you got to get a little purple on a thing like this. People eat it up. You can't spread it on too thick. Anyway, I was lost in a cave once when I was a kid in upstate New York. I waited around for a couple of hours in the dark until they came for me. It uh, kind of reminded me of that. It reminded the world of terrors at night, of struggling awake through nightmares. The fears of loneliness, darkness, falling, suffocation, thirst. It reminded me of Rev. McMillan. And perhaps I have an advantage over all the other reporters for newspapers and radio and television because I knew Rev. McMillan. I knew him in college and in the Air Force. I knew that he was testing rocket-powered craft at Goddard, but I didn't know they were so close to space. No one knew, till those messages of desperation crackled down through the atmosphere. I remembered Rev when I saw those headlines that morning. Straight black hair, Clark Gable ears, a reckless grin. He ate well, 
reveled in expert jazz and Mozart opera, and he talked incessantly. His southern speech was no drawl. There was too much to say. And now he was alone, and soon all that might be extinguished. The men from the radio newsrooms rushed to Goddard rocket base armed with miniature tape recorders. Gentlemen, I'm Colonel Arthur J. Hannigan, information officer for Goddard Rocket Base. And I'm authorized to issue the following statement. First Lieutenant Reverty L. McMillan, United States Air Force pilot, Experimental Rocket Division, took off from Goddard Base at 22.34 Rocky Mountain time. As craft, the XR-37 Mark II, a hydrazine nitric three-stage rocket. I'm sorry I can't describe it, boys, classified. Well, in order to maintain orbit, the motors were pulsed for one second every 15 seconds elapsed time. After three minutes, the exhaust was seen by ground spectroscope observation to flare for half a minute as fuel supplies exhausted. The craft has reached sustaining orbital speed. Well, what does that mean, Colonel? He's out of gas. He can't get down. The first mobilization was of the scientific brains massed at Goddard. Few of them knew Rev. Brains at a research project are usually carefully sorted out and salted away from the distractions of the outside world. They designed, they invented, they calibrated and theorized. But they didn't know the short, stocky man with a lopsided grin who rode the fruit of their labor up and up and now circled the world of his birth with time ticking out. I covered the hearings in Washington for the network newsroom. I flew down from New York, and the stewardess came out every few minutes to tell the passengers the latest news. She called him Rev, although she never knew him, and once I thought I saw a tear... The hearing was before the subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs, presiding Senator Alan J. Haggister of Kentucky. <coughs> All right, General Finch. You've made the technical situation fairly comprehensive, even to an old cane break, redneck hillbilly like myself. <laughs> I have tried to make the gravity of the situation apparent, sir. It appears to me, General that the sacred life of a human being created in the image of his maker is in danger. There's no light thing to be thrown away like some guinea pig. If that ship wasn't safe, if that poor man up there in the cave of night is to die, somebody is responsible. Isn't that right, General? Sir, a manned rocket was sent up because of one simple fact. It takes a computer of tremendous versatility and capacity to operate a Harrison Munch reactor engine, a computer of infinite complexity. And I ask you, General, I put the question to you, why was such a computer not designed? It has been designed, sir. It was designed a half a million years ago. There is only one mechanism competent to handle those controls, sir. That is the human brain. <clears throat> All right, I turn now to my second question, General, and I ask it... Not only for myself and my colleagues on this committee, but for 170 million Americans listening on the radio, watching on television. With that man up there living out his last days, why was it not possible to send a ship up after him? Why was there no second ship built? For one reason, Senator, money. The appropriation for rocket research fell short by 
12% of the amount needed even to build one vessel. Oh, frankly, gentlemen, the deficiency was made up by cutting corners and diverting funds from other projects. That is not the point, General. There's a man up there who's going to die. With the limited funds you gave us, we've done what we set out to do. We've demonstrated that space flight is possible, that a space platform is feasible. If there is any inefficiency, if there is any blame for what has happened, it lies at the door of those who lack the confidence and the courage and ability of their countrymen to fight free of Earth to their greatest glory. Senator... How did you vote on that? <laughs> this is Harry Anders in the gallery of the Washington National Cathedral. This is a special prayer service called by the dean of the cathedral for the safety of Lieutenant McMillan and for the success of the recently announced rescue plan. The church is filled. There's a sprinkling of high Navy, Army, and Air Force uniforms. I see General Finch in the second row, next to the Secretary of the Air Force and the newly appointed Undersecretary of Defense, Mr. Winokur. Prominently displayed in the center aisle, below the ornate railing separating the pews from the altar, is the small model of Macmillan's ship. One by one now, the congregation is filing past, dropping checks, bills. I saw one child drop in 12 pennies, one by one. All contributions are to be used to defray the cost of the rescue effort. The congregation is now kneeling to pray. A moment of silent prayer will follow for the safety and rescue of Lieutenant McMillan. One billion dollars was raised in one week from voluntary contributions. Another billion and a half was appropriated unanimously by Congress. The race began. Would the rescue party reach the ship in time? course, we didn't know then. And daily we listened to the voice of the man we hoped to buy back from death. Uh, now, look, Bill, on these Macmillan broadcast tapes, uh, don't let some, some ignorant engineering vice president holler because it's not broadcast quality. Believe me, I knew Macmillan. There's more of that wild Texan in these tapes than in any, any hi-fi super-frequency response studio recordings. Just listen. You, you'll see what I mean. I've been staring out the portholes. I never tire of it. Through the window at the right, I see a black velvet curtain with a strong light behind it. There are pinpoint holes in the curtain, and the light shines through, not winking the way stars do, but steady. There's no air up here, that's the reason. My oxygen is holding out better than I expected. By my figures, it should last 27 days more. I shouldn't use so much of it talking all the time, but it's hard to stop Talking, I feel as if I was still in touch with the earth. Still one of you. Even though I am way up here. Too bad the receiver is broken, but if it had to be one or the other, I'm glad it was the transmitter that came through all right. There's only one of me. There are billions of you to talk to. You can't see me now. You'll have to wait hours for the dawn. I'll have mine in a few minutes. That's the way he talked. And as we listened to the lonely voice from the night, 
The engineers, the scientists, the construction men worked round the clock. General Finch presented the problem in the pool interview. I asked the questions for the combined networks that afternoon. Most of you heard the complete broadcast live as he briefed the world with the clipped laconic delivery of a soldier. There are two basic problems. We've recovered the first and second stages of the rocket. We've only to construct the third stage. The second problem is more difficult. The pilot. Lieutenant McMillan was the only man physically and psychologically qualified. We discovered that in our first program. His training and orientation took 18 months. We have now to duplicate this in 27 days. You think it's possible, General? I don't know. Uh, that's all, Mr. Anders. Uh, Stevenson, get me some coffee, will you? Black and some kind of sandwich, no butter, no mayonnaise. And then the voice from the cave asked a question and expected no answer. Do you hear me down there? Sometimes I wonder. I wish there was some way I could be sure you were hearing me. Just that one thing might keep me from going crazy. I was there the night we answered that question. I was there in a helicopter over Kansas City. This is Harry Anders speaking to you from a helicopter over Kansas City. There are 15 seconds till midnight. The plan was developed by General Finch. At precisely midnight, every light in the city will be out and then flashed on in two-second intervals. This will be the exact moment that McMillan's ship is calculated to pass overhead. It's, it's almost time now. Five, four, three, two, one. There they go. Off. On. Off. On. Off. On. I see it. I see it. Kansas City winking at me. Oh, yes, I can see it. Thanks. Thanks. You're listening. I know that now. I'm not alone. I'll never forget. I'm waiting for you. We're recording in the press gallery of the Goddard Rocket Base Main Construction Hangar. The vast third stage component stands before us, men swarming up and down the gantry cranes. The Mark III is being built to carry five men instead of one. The pilot selection has been kept a top secret to avoid unnecessary strain on the men selected. The latest progress report gives a possible margin of six hours between the launching of the rescue ship and the estimated exhaustion supply of oxygen to Lieutenant McMillan. Oh, the shift is changing now. The expert construction workers recruited from across the country by the combined efforts of the Air Force Personnel Service, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the International United Electrical Workers and United Auto Workers of the AFL-CIO. The margin is six hours. Six hours between life and death for Lieutenant Reverdy L. McMillan. saw the sun rise over Russia. Looks like any other land from here. The green where it should be green. Farther north, a, a sort of mud color. And then white where the snow is still deep. Up here, you wonder why we're so different when the land is the same. You think we're all the same children of the same mother planet. Who says we're different? 
Yeah. Uh, can you hear me in the back? Yes, a little close. Well, uh, how about this? Yeah. That's better. That's better. All right, gentlemen, I have exactly five minutes for the press conference, therefore I'm not going to answer any questions. Progress report is as follows. As a safety factor, we're constructing two complete three-stage rockets and six additional third-stage components. The telemetered reports from McMillan's ship have added important additional information, and the first of the rescue vessels should be ready to be launched at the estimated time, weather permitting. Now, don't ask a question. Within certain limitations of air turbulence, the rocket will be ready to lift in time to save Lieutenant McMillan. 21 days. The air is bad tonight. I can't seem to get a full breath. It seems to stick in the lungs. It doesn't matter, though. But I wish you could see what I've seen. The vast spreading universe around Earth like a bride in a soft veil. You'd know then that we belong out here. Come out, mankind. Come out and see what I have seen. This is Harry Anders at Goddard Rocket Base. The Harrison Munch reactor engine for the first third stage rescue is being tested here at Goddard. You can hear the roaring of the gases in the test chamber behind me. The work has been stepped up as a new calculation based on the increased temperature reading from McMillan's ship indicates that the exhaustion time will be some six hours earlier than originally estimated. The margin of rescue will be in minutes. Air very bad. Better hurry. Can't last much longer. Silly, of course you'll hurry. But I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. I've seen the stars clearly. But more than this, I've seen the earth. There where I have lived and loved. I have known it better than any man. And loved it better. And known its children better. Goodbye. I have a better tomb than the greatest conqueror earth ever bore. Do not disturb. Count down for blast off. Five, four, three, two, one. Anders, tape three, two, three. We're in the press operation room of Goddard Field. The rescue rocket has been aloft 53 minutes plus. Its calculated time of arrival is 54 minutes. You will hear the voice of General Beauregard Finch on a direct pickup from the rescue vessel, which has been named unofficially the Lifesaver. Silent crowds have collected at the outer perimeter of the rocket base, as if by their presence they might help it. Quiet, quiet. The next voice you hear will be General Finch aloft in the rescue ship. The voice quality may not be good. He's speaking over a throat mic in his pressure suit. Mark three to base. This is Finch. We'll secure that cable. We have just secured to the airlock of McMillan's ship. I'm now entering the lock. The inner door is closed. 
I have closed the outer door. The inner door is cycling. Now it is open. Bring in those oxy bottles, will you? The bulkheads of the control room is open. Is he all right? Come on, will you? What's happening? Lieutenant McMillan is dead. He died heroically, waiting till all hope was gone. Until every oxygen gauge stood at zero. And then, well, the airlock was open when we arrived. In accordance with his own wish, his body will be left here in its eternal orbit. I'm going to leave now. My feet will be the last to touch this deck. Lieutenant McMillan is in his control chair, staring out towards the stars. I'll leave the airlock doors open behind me. Let the airless, frigid arms of space protect and preserve for all eternity. This man they would not let go. Well, that's the show, Bill. Bill, you remember at the conference we... We hadn't made up our mind whether to pick anything up from the celebration last night after the news of the Mars landing. I said it was the right end for Rev. McMillan's story. You said it was old stuff. Every kid knew the sequence. The ships built to rescue Rev used to set up the satellite base from the base to the moon and now to Mars. Well, I went out with a mini-tape last night and I've got the end of the story. Here it is. This is Harry Anders in Times Square. The neon rocket ship at the top of the Times building has just flashed into brilliant light. The signal that the landing signal has been received from the rocket Rev. McMillan III. Man has landed on Mars. And a holiday crowd here in Times Square is celebrating like a thousand New Year's rolled into one. I'm being, I'm being tossed and pushed and clapped on the back all at once. Uh, let's see what the man in the street thinks about man on Mars. Uh, you, uh, you, sir, uh, I'm broadcasting. No, no. No, no. How do you feel about it, sir? How do you feel tonight about man's conquest of space, of the planet? Leave me alone. I'm in a hurry. Uh, just a few words of the... Look, you get your hands off me. Let go of me. I'm not in... Wait a minute, sir. Wait, wait. Wait. Rev! Rev, come back here. Rev! You think I could listen to that voice over and over in a tape editing room and not know every vowel, every consonant? I'm telling you, Bill, I saw him. Rev McMillan. The black hair was gray and those Clark Gable ears were pinned back, but that's a simple operation. I played that piece of tape over and over. It was Rev. I know it. He isn't up there. He's alive. We've got it, Bill. We've got it on our show. We'll break it. Rev McMillan is alive. I haven't written it yet, but we finish it off with this, with a question. Why did they announce he was dead? I'm in the tape editing room now. I've got the reel ready to record the answer. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Andrews. I'm... Uh, hey, 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 J just a minute. I'm recording. You better see the page outside uh, Mr. at the... Mr. Andrews, I'd like to talk to you for a moment, if I may. I have a letter of authorization. Oh, uh, oh just a minute. I'll, I'll be through in a minute. Look, Bill, I've got the answer now. Last night, they landed on Mars. But that first ship, the one that circles up there now, there isn't anybody on it. There never was, except a 30 days recording and a transmitter. That's all. He was never up there. They didn't have the money for a manned rocket. They wanted a crash program all out, so they sent a decoy up. <laughs> and we all broke our hearts to rescue the man who wasn't there. Oh, he must be laughing, General Finch and the rest of them, the ones that knew. You know, I guess they had a problem. What to do with Rev? <laughs> I wonder if he slipped away from whatever guards they have around him to see the celebration. 
He looked a little, uh, a little sad. I think sometimes he, he must wish he was really up there in the cave of night, seated in the icy control room, 1,075 miles above the earth, staring out at the stars. Mr. Anders, I must insist... What? That... Uh, oh, uh... Oh, Bill. Looks as if I won't have to worry about editing this tape. My friends are from Washington. I'd like to call your attention to the last paragraph. What? Oh, no, 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 no. It's very simple. You won't have to burn it. It's easy to destroy recording tape. I throw this switch. When the tape goes through, the erasing head, it's... It's gone forever. Oh, too bad. Would have made one fine show. Okay. So long, Rev. You have just listened to The Cave of Night, written by James E. Gunn and broadcast as an episode of X-1, February 1, 1956. You have also listened to The Velt by Ray Bradbury. Both stories are part of this reimagined celebration of the radio anthology program X-1, which from 1955 to 1958 offered some of the best original science fiction stories by leading authors of the time. Both The Velt and The Cave of Night illustrate the high-quality stories X-1 offered radio listeners, as well as the production values used in transforming these stories into radio dramas. For these reasons, the popularity of X-1 continues today. This celebration of X-1 has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Thank you to all who contributed, including sound design by John Barber, post-production by Martin John Gallagher, theatrical music and sound, social media by Regina Carroll, social media and photography, and promotional graphics by Holly Slocum Design. For more information about past and future episodes of Reimagined Radio, and to subscribe to our snappy email newsletter, please visit our website, www.reimaginedradio.net. That's www.reimaginedradio, all one word, no punctuation, dot net. You can also follow Reimagined Radio on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Join us on social media and keep up to date on behind-the-scenes and special information we provide about each episode of Reimagined Radio. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you so much for listening, and please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio. Thank you for listening to Wednesday Wonders right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including Monday Matinee for classic live and theatrical audio plays, Tuesday Terrors for horror audio drama, Thursday Thrillers for action, adventure, mystery, and crime drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, Saturday Story Circle for kids and families alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. This is the Mutual Audio Network, where we listen and imagine together.